Let's pray. Father, we today look back to the miracle of Christ's coming, that um, the fact that you've loved us so much that you've sent your only son into the world. And so let us never lose the wonder of your love for wayward and, and, and God-rejecting people like ourselves. Your love was a love that was so great that you came to earth in Christ to walk among us, to die in our place, so that we could be in an eternal relationship with you. And so, Father, enable the truth of the, the incarnation to change us. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. I like to think that I take some time to go through my prayers on a Sunday morning and I'm thinking joy and prayer on Sunday morning and how is that going to look like? And honestly, I have to be really honest with you. I have to admit that this was actually the first thing that came into mind when I was preparing my life lesson. Watch the screen. Before we begin, since this is Aunt Bethany's 80th Christmas, I think she should lead us in the saying of grace. Away 30 years ago. They want you to say grace. The blessing. allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. One nation with liberty and justice for all. Amen. 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 <laughs> I showed this last night. I got a text. You got, you bet. You know which movie I'm watching. Yeah, the annual Christmas vacation. There are a lot of paradoxes and oxymorons and morons, I may add, in the world that we live in. You know, seemingly impossible things, seemingly contradictory things. Uh, an oxymoron, if you didn't know, is a, a figure of speech which produces an incongruous, uh, seemingly self-contradictory effect, and as in jumbo shrimp, a work party, Microsoft works, and of course, country music. Now, um, paradox, on the other hand, is a statement or a proposition. Look at the haters, my goodness. It's joy, Merry Christmas. Wow. <laughs> Boy, did I hit some nerves. Welcome to Soul Sanctuary. I'm just getting started. So there's going to be a whole lot of ouches going on today. Yeah. You know, a paradox is a statement or a proposition that seems self-contradictory or absurd, but in reality expresses some sort of possible truth. And... Uh, and it's, it's interesting because it, it sort of appears contradictory by nature. For example, you know, why do we have croutons in airtight packages? Really, because, you know, they're just stale bread to begin with, right? Or, or why, if you ask people if they have deer heads mounted on their walls, and some of you do this, and, you know, you ask the question, and they say, well, because, you know, they're such beautiful animals. And I go, well, you know, I think my wife's beautiful, but I only have photographs of her on my wall, you know? Um, 
Why is the hardness of butter directly proportional to the softness of the bread? You ever thought about that? Or the severity of the itch is inversely proportional as to where the ability is to reach it. Or if Barbie's so popular, why do you have to buy her friends? If the number two pencil is so popular, why is it just number two? Why isn't it the number one? And so every Christmas, I find myself particularly in conflict. I find myself living in a land of oxymorons, paradoxes, and morons. I have to say that. And to think that I have to go to Costco when this is done after this. I don't do well in Costco. My salvation is left outside the parking lot. I'll drink to that. Yeah. Somebody remembers my life lessons. Hallelujah. You know, I, I, honestly, at Christmas time, I do want to um, give to those that are less fortunate, but I find myself fueling the consumeristic notion for Christmas. This drives me crazy. I, I, I want to light up our world. I, you know, again, let's, let's go crazy. If we're going to do it, let's, let's do it, you know, Chevy Chase style and just light up the world. But I need to be globally conscious. I hear songs that talk about peace on earth, and yet I see people fighting for parking spaces or struggling for items on sale. Or I think about Silent Night, and I put up with the loud muzak in the malls. But then I see the, 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 this commercial, The Magic of Christmas. You see, you see that one? Yeah. And then I experience it all the more. Because Christmas time is a time when we're to celebrate the birth of Christ and the, the Son of God. That's really what Christmas is about. It's the time of the year when Christians take the time to remember the, the miracle of the virgin birth. The, a, a miracle performed by the living God, which we're going to look into a little bit closer today. And yet magic, when you think about it, on the other hand, is, completely, is, is a commonly used word which has its origin in sorcery and wizardry. And, and the meaning of of the word magic is found at the extreme opposite end of the spectrum from all that constitutes the reason that we celebrate Christmas. Oh, got that off my chest. I'll drink to that. My wife's not here. I can say that a whole lot. And I sit and I ponder the claims of Christianity. And we're coming to this, this time of year, the, the two most important times of the Christian calendar, Christmas and Easter, of which many people in our culture actually go to church. Go figure that. The Christers, we affectionately call them. So I need you to seek out the Christers and, and, and bring them either to Blue Christmas or bring them to Christmas Eve with you or bring them to Christmas Day and let them hear what they need to hear. Jesus said some stuff. He said some crazy stuff. In John 12, he says, he who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world shall keep it. Now, in our understanding, in our society, in our culture, you look out for number one, right? We look out for ourselves. And who's number one? We, obviously, we are. And, and it's beautiful when you see people in the parking lot and the turning signals are on, and then you watch, excuse me, you watch people going into other people's parking stalls. Because all they cared was looking out for number one, right? We are a society, we are a culture, we uh, live in this expectation that our own life matters. We love ourselves. And if you don't love yourself according to our society, well, then you are foolish. But yet when we take a look and we 
stand back and read scripture, we see that Jesus is telling us to actually hate, hate our lives in this world. Now, clearly, it's meant to be a comparison as, as to how we love him and follow him. But the statement at first is this paradox. It contradicts our society's common understanding of love itself. When, when Jesus says things like it's more blessed to give than to receive, our first reaction is what a paradox. But in living of our faith, in knowing Christ more fully, in, in meditating on scripture, we come to understand that these things make actually perfect sense in the economy of God, even when we don't fully understand it ourselves. And these are actually just a few of the passages that we could, we could present some of the Christian faith as paradoxes. You know, we haven't even begun to look at many others, and, and we will as we begin to walk through the book of Matthew. Uh, then I ponder the, the great truths of the Christmas story, and, and, and that's where I find ourselves today. You know, two weeks ago, we looked at the beginning of Matthew, and it, it, it begins with this genealogy, tracing the line uh, from Abraham to whom promises made through David, who became the first king in the line, and there was also some other covenantal promises made to Jesus Christ. And that this genealogy shows that the, the family of Joseph was in the, the line of the kings, of King David, that Jesus was the son of David. And, and that there was this legal claim to the throne. So according, accordingly, Matthew, he begins to present, he writes this letter, and he's presenting to his Greek-speaking Christian Jewish audience. That's who he's writing to. And he presents to them Jesus as the promised king, the Messiah, through that whole genealogy. And now we come to the second part of Matthew chapter 1. And... and, and it says this, it says, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. Now he tells a story. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. Now again, if you're reading this letter for the first time, well, who's Mary? That, that becomes the first question. And, and so what we do is we go back to, for us, we have the benefit, we go back to Luke chapter 1, and Mary's a simple girl, and she's growing up in a small town called Nazareth. It's a dumpy, it's part of the dumpy party town, let's be honest, what it is. First century Nazareth was located just four miles from a Roman garrison called uh, Sephorus, and when the boys in the army got a few days leaving, a few bucks in their pocket, and they would go to Nazareth where they would find cheap wine and cheap girls. That was part of what they did. Luke continues, he says, In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth to a virgin pled to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So prior to this, Mary and Joseph are engaged, and uh, this is a, a big time of joy, right? Any, anything like that. Most women know how big it is. Some of you guys don't know, and that's probably why you're not engaged. I'm just throwing it out there. But Mary is pledged to be married to Joseph, and the cultural expectations that they are living in is that she is still living with her parents. And I need to address something here because, uh, you know, somebody has, has uh, pointed out to the fact, well, you don't talk about this at all or very much, and you seem to be quite open. Opinionated, so I'm going to take some time and, and talk about this and be very opinionated, to which I actually may offend somebody, to which I will say, welcome to Seoul. This is going to be round two. Now, if this was contemporary society, as we're looking at with Mary and Joseph, but Mary would probably have moved in with Joseph first. And that raises the question, so why not live together before marriage, which is becoming more and more of a trend for Christian couples? Somebody once said, well, it's like test driving a car, to which I thought, how romantic. I never thought about it that way, like seriously. 
And then on the other hand, you know, test driving a car before you buy it is a wise thing. It makes only sense. But in this context, I would say that test driving your car would be things like dating and friendship and courting and getting to know the person, moving in together, living together, acting like you're married without the title of marriage for a few months, a year, or even years, or whatever, is not test driving a car. That's least to own. Yeah, now you're putting it together. Thank you very much. And, and it's crazy because I think, uh, and I have to say this, that our culture is missing out on this. And let me explain it. Because you don't get to test drive a car uh, and you don't get go and after you're doing that, tell the salesperson, you know, I'm not sure I like this. I'm going to think I'm going to take it home with me for a couple of years before I think about buying it. I'm going to drive around in it, you know, and do life with it. And then I'll tell you if I'm going to decide whether or not I'm going to buy it. They just don't let you do that. That doesn't exist. And the thing about living together as husband and wife, even though you don't have the contract or the covenant, or even though you have not made the public promise, listen, you're actually doing marriage. So, you know, you can live together before you get married and you can fool yourself. You know, you're training yourself to do marriage without the full 100% buy-in of till death do us part. And the crazy thing is, is that studies are continually showing us that consistently, at least 30, and one stat that I actually just found just recently says that up to 49% of couples who live together before getting married get divorced within the first five years of getting married. And this doesn't even include how many people even break up after they just move in together. So you see that when we move in together, when we live together, Whatever you want to call it, what we're doing actually is marriage without the full commitment. The Bible says a whole lot about marriage. That's not what I'm talking about here today. We will be. I have John and Helen Burns coming in in January. And John and Helen will be uh, uh, talking with our youth uh, on the Friday, on the Saturday morning of January, I think it's 21st or something like 20 or 21st, uh, Saturday morning, we're going to do a marriage seminar with John and Helen. They'll be again speaking Saturday night, uh, and we're going to do uh, another focus, specifically singles or young adult focus on Saturday night, and then on Sunday morning here, they'll be speaking again. So we are, are moving in this direction because I'm seeing our culture becoming unglued. Everything that we do is a risk. Why don't we realize that? Anything that we, anything important that we do in our lives is a risk. We don't have kids to see if we like having kids, do we? You don't get a BA in science to decide if you want to have a BA in science. You don't make major life decisions like moving to another city for 10 years and then ask, hey, do you think we should live here for another 10 years? We make decisions and we lean in and we live in and we love into that decision. And I will say this, that marriage is a decision that we make that we don't want to train ourselves in the wrong ways of walking into it. It's a huge risk without question and we're better prepared for marriage when we walk into it fresh and committed and to make it work and then saying that you know we'll live together and to decide if, to see if we'll get married that just makes no sense to me 
So what if you're in this state of cohabitation? I'm not here to make you feel guilty. Cohabitation without commitment, well, it's, it's, it's quite simple. Come talk to me. We'll help you. We'll work things out. We'll bring in our people who do our premarital consultation. We'll walk with you guys, and we'll, we'll and in my opinion, we'll make it right. If you're engaged and you're contemplating, oh, we're going to save money. No, you're going to mess up your life. You know, I think that we can learn from Mary and Joseph. How ironic. How ironic when we go back to our text and we see that Mary in her culture was different and yet similar. And here's this young girl was expected to live by a certain code of ethics. Anywhere between the ages of 12 to 16 years of age, women would be getting married in that culture. That was the, the marital time. Think about that, ladies. Go figure that one out. If a man was 13 years of age, he was an adult. He was treated like that. There was no adolescence. He could get married providing that he could provide and, and secure a fact that he had a job and a house, which is something for us to think about, isn't it, gentlemen? So really, in ancient times, most marriages, it was a much older man and a younger woman, which we're going to presume that that was taking place here with Mary and Joseph, as opposed to two kids, which I've heard often being talked about. And, and again, the man would pursue the woman. We would see that. There would be no sexual contact in the relationship at all. They would get engaged. It was actually a formal time. It was a time that lasted a year uh, for most part. They would have a ring on her finger. A pledge was made. A wedding date was picked. And then the, the things were prepared for the wedding, which could eventually the wedding celebration, we think about one day and all the money that we blow on that. Theirs was like up to a week long. Can you imagine that kind of party? And so this is what was going on. And the scripture says, the angel went to her and said, greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now, it's interesting. Again, we take a step back, take a look at who Mary is, because some are under the impression that God chose Mary because of something righteous in her, you know, that maybe Mary was sinless or perfect. That's not what it says here in Luke. The angel Gabriel made it clear that she was chosen by God as an act of grace. That is why he says to her, greetings, you are highly favored. And that word favored means to receive grace. And Gabriel didn't say that she was perfect or sinless. We know that nobody's ever been sinless with the exception of Jesus. So we got to be careful that we don't make it too lightly of the character of Mary. But at the same time, we got to be careful not to exalt her too highly. Now, she has this divine encounter. Let's say she's 13, 14. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting that this might be. <laughs> An angel shows up and says, hey, you're favored. <laughs> of course, you're going to be, what are you talking about? I, see, I think she had a Keanu Reeves moment. Whoa, you know, just, just sort of being there. And the angel says to her, don't be afraid. Now, that's a, that's a key thing, because whenever God showed up in the form of an angel uh, throughout the Old Testament, we saw that people got afraid, and they, they actually would fall down to, their, to the ground with their face to the ground. Why? Because they were under the impression that when God showed himself, that he would kill them. And so, of course, we always see this happening with the angels. They're showing up. People are thinking, God is, is, is uh, uh, revealing himself. I'm about to die. And, of course, the angel says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. 
and you're going to be with a child, give birth to a son. Now he tells a story, this is beautiful. Uh, and you're going to give him the name Jesus, and he'll be great, and you'll be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will never end. And so in our culture, you know, the adolescent attitude actually continues long after people get married. Have you noticed that sometimes? And in this culture, once you're 13, you're expected to act as an adult. And so here we have this young woman who's a teen by our standards, is one who's chosen by God. And so God sees Mary, and this is beautiful, God sees this young woman, and he chooses her to raise God. And the angel says that she is highly favored. And this simple, rural, poor girl from a hick town who's planning her wedding day. And then this angel shows up and he begins to change absolutely everything. And then she asks the big question, excuse me, Mr. Gabriel, how am I going to get pregnant? <laughs> I'm a virgin. <laughs> She gets this news, and this is how she responds. You know, it makes sense. How is this going to happen? She doesn't say no. She doesn't say, I don't want the job, or, you know what, excuse me, uh, Mr. Gabriel, I already have plans. She, or she doesn't say, find somebody else. She says, how is this going to happen? God shows up. And this devout little girl, who's not really a little girl, this devout woman trusts God. And she's free enough to say that, God, help me understand. And God does just that. And then the explanation that the angel gives her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power uh, of the Most High will overshadow you, so the one Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Like, that's just a wow moment. Now this teen virgin is told that she's going to have this baby, but more than that, that what type of baby? The baby that, you know, all that she's ever known, they've talked about this Messiah, and now she's told that she will be the one who's bringing in this baby, the Messiah. Even Elizabeth your relative is going to have a child in her own age, old age, and, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. And so God starts showing miracles to this young lady. And of all the Gospels, Luke is the writer here, and he writes like nobody else, and he reveals the depth of the miracle. And, and the crazy thing about Luke is, is that he is a doctor and if he could believe then all can believe that this is a great miracle of God and so the doctor is writing a story of a young virgin who will be getting pregnant through a miracle and I think Mary herself is having difficulty of grasping the, the awesomeness of this miracle. And she, you know, she's not saying, I refuse to believe this. She's, she's saying, wow. Just, just let, me, let me recover here from this news that you're saying here. This got me thinking. Can, you know, God speaks to Mary on this way. Can you believe that God can do a miracle in you and through you as believers today? 
it's interesting. God shows up and she allows, this is this theological complications, but she allows God to do this work. Yes, she's chosen and we can get Calvinist or whatever you want to go on me, but we're not going to go there. But there's, there's this interesting aspect of allowing God, submitting our will to God. Have you ever allowed God to do the unexpected, the amazing, and the miraculous in your life? Maybe the answer is, well, no. Well, then the next question is, well, why not? You know, God did not stop with the miracles in the Bible. We know the virgin birth is a tremendous miracle. The miracles of Jesus that he performed, the healings, the, the turning water into wine, the others. And, 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 and the Bible is a complete book, but your life and my life can be still filled with pages of miracles. And the key is trusting and believing that it's one of the most important things. It's that God is wanting to use us in everyday situations to do something extraordinary. And that's why I take a look at Mary and I go, she's got it nailed down. There's a word in Luke 1 that talks about being poured out. The, the, the Greek word there is also the, used when, when Jesus talks about his Holy Spirit being poured out on mankind in, in Acts 1.8. So God can do miracles. He, he wants to pour out his Spirit on Mary and, and then he... he uh, says, we'll take a look at your cousin Elizabeth. God has a plan for her. And, you know, we thought she was barren, but no, look at, look at what's going on. And so God has a plan for human history. And then Mary sees all this and she answers, I am the Lord's servant. And may it be to me as you have said. And then the angel leaves and you think about it, this encounter can, can destroy Mary's whole life. Imagine Mary's perspective. Here she is, she's pregnant, fine. But she's never had sex. Try to explain that one. A virgin birth, yeah, right. You know? Now she could lose her husband to be. She could have a reputation of being loose. She could actually be stoned or, or, or killed because of infidelity or perceived infidelity. She could be a single parent forever. And yet she's told that this is good news. And so the good news is that she could lose her fiance. The good news is that she could lose her reputation. She, the good news is that she could even lose her life, if you think about it. But what does she say? She says, I'm the Lord's servant. There's no fighting. There's no arguing recorded. There's no selfishness. There's no mistrust. There's no distrust. It could cost her everything, and yet she trusts God. And as Mary listened to the angel, she must have wrestled with the consequences that were going to come if she accepted Jesus' call. How am I going to explain this to my family? What is Joseph going to say? What about the townspeople? What are they going to think of me? Am I headed for a life of being a single parent? Uh, you know, um, am I going to get killed for adultery? You know, maybe her whole life, you know, is now going to be under this cloud of suspicion from her family and her neighbors. And so within Mary's decision to be fully submissive to the call of God was her willingness, if need be, she was willing to suffer ridicule and contentment and loneliness. Because God doesn't force his choice on Mary. She willingly embraced what God had for her. 
And the decision was made with no assurance that anybody except God is actually going to fully understand what's going on here. And now Mary's engaged to this blue-collar worker, this carpenter. Again, she's a godly, pure woman. Joseph, he's a descendant of David, as we saw. Mary has no guarantee that her beloved Joseph would understand or even believe her story of miraculous conception. And now she has to face the man that she loved and to tell him, I'm pregnant. <laughs> and Joseph's not the dad. Now, in ancient Hebrew marriages, they had two stages. The Kiddushin was that in engagement, the betrothal. Now, and again, it was a legal issue. The, the couple was legally married at this point in time. They're not living together, and they haven't consummated the, the relationship. In other words, they didn't have sex, all right, in case I want to be crystal clear for our audience. But the Kiddushin could, again, last up to 12 months. It, it tested, interestingly, it tested fidelity and integrity in the relationship. So you were legally committed, but you had no sex. And it tested the fidelity and the integrity in the relationship. And if you're going to break this relationship, in our day and days, oh, we just call it off. Let's just, let's just call it off. Here, no, you actually had to get a divorce, even though you hadn't consummated. So it was a big deal. The second part is called the hoopah, and, and it was the marriage ceremony itself where Joseph, uh, you know, the, the, the breaking of the glass, the, the, the different traditions that take place there. And so you got to think that here, Joseph, he's planning to marry his sweetheart. He's drawing up the house plans. You know, he's a carpenter. He's carving out the marriage bed, right? He's got big plans. Mary, she's got big plans too, right? Because she's, you know, planning an elaborate wedding for a hit girl. I don't know, maybe they would have some sort of kebab. And, uh, you know, she's picking out china patterns, right? things that they do during that time, looking for the perfect lingerie for the honeymoon, all those big plans. Now you can imagine, you like that one, did you? So you can imagine that's actually what happens when, you know, anyway, let's go on. <laughs> and maybe this is how the scene unfolds. Mary sits down with her 20-something husband, which I presume Joseph was, and it's in the garden of their parents' home, and Joseph starts talking about the floor plans of the house or the wall color, and Mary says, Joe, we need to talk. And any guy, when your girlfriend says we need to talk, you know you're about to go to the rent zone. We need to talk, but she goes on further, and she doesn't bring the friend zone, and she says, I'm pregnant. And I don't see her telling this to Joseph with tears of shame, but rather with a quiet confidence. And at first, Joseph doesn't believe what he's hearing. She actually, you know, entertained the idea, well, maybe, you know, maybe Mary's joking. I did that with my boys once. We were sitting around the dinner table. I told them mom was pregnant. That didn't go over well. It was a joke. <laughs> and then one day it happened. <laughs> Now, that's not what was taking place here. I think Joseph knew that she wouldn't be joking about this serious because it was literally a life and death matter. And, and, and I'm sure questions are running through his mind. Is what she's saying true? Is she, is she pregnant? And of course, the first question is going to be from Joseph. Who's the father? Because in his own conscience, he knows he's not the guy. He knows the baby isn't his. He'd never violated the purity of, of the engagement period. 
And, and even if he'd wanted to, how could he? Because in the relationship style, Mary had been carried out, his relationship with Mary had been carried out in full view of the close-knit community surrounding him. That's one of the most, and again, here's my cultural throw out. I want to throw at some of you guys, and you're going to be going, you know what, Machowski, you're old school. And I'm going, yeah, you know what? Probably because my old school works to what I'm seeing happening in our culture today where everything's just getting flushed down the toilet. If you're dating somebody, go out and friends. Go out in community. And what we see what happens is couples get hooked up and then they separate. They're off by themselves. They lose their friendships. They get distorted from all community. All they have is each other. And nine times out of ten, the relationships tank. And then they have a hard time reintegrating back in community because they turn their back on everybody. And what we have here is a beautiful biblical pattern, an ancient Hebrew pattern. We're going, look at, do relationship in community. When you're engaged, when you're dating, have people around. Our kids hate it when we send our younger boys out with their girlfriends and stuff. No, everybody, who are you with? Make sure there's community always around. That's what was going on with Mary and Joseph. And so Joseph is living in this close relationship and thinking that their relationship's in full view of this close-knit community surrounding them. But apparently, as he's hearing Mary talk, apparently Mary's not the person that Joseph thought she was. And Mary tells him that an angel had appeared to her and said that, listen, Joseph, um, I had an angel talk to me and he said I was going to conceive miraculously and that my baby's going to be the promise to live. My, my baby, this, this baby's going to be the Messiah. and It's going to be God's son. What we've been taught about ever since we've been, been born. And, and I'm sure she said it so confidently and, and calmly. Why? Because she had this divine encounter. But how is Joseph going to believe a story like that without saying another word? He probably got up. He probably went home to cry. He was devastated. You know, what could he do? A virgin birth? Yeah, yeah right. That ain't going to happen. And Matthew writes, well, because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man. Interesting aspect again. Like Mary, he would have been a very careful observer of the law, and he did not want to expose her to public disgrace. This is how much this guy loved her, that he had in mind just to divorce her quietly. And when Joseph of Nazareth makes his first appearance in the biblical story, we learn, the first thing we learn about Joseph is he wants a divorce. His engagement to Mary has already lasted a number of months, but this new information now comes to light. Information that crushes his heart. It drives him into desperate extremes. And he realized that he just loved this girl more than any other person that he'd ever known. He had his heart set on doing a family with her, and now he can't even trust her anymore. But he loves her so much that he doesn't want her judged publicly. So he walks away from the garden conversation. <sighs> Broken, shattered. <sighs> I'll just divorce her privately. And I'll do it in the morning. I just, I just need to sleep. I'm exhausted. And I could see him just falling into this exhausted sleep. And Scripture says after he considered this, so he already made his decision. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. He said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. 
Because what she has conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has said to the prophet, that the virgin will be with child and give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke up, Interesting, God speaks to him in a dream, very, very, very pointedly, very descriptively. And when he wakes up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he takes Mary home as his wife. Again, very clear, but he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. And I find it fascinating, because as with Mary, you know, an angel shows up with Joseph, and it's fascinating because this incident is so far removed from our human experience that these two had to have some sort of divine revelation from God that would both calm Mary and Joseph, that would something God would have to show up in a crazy way so that their hearts are set at ease and that they can be encouraged in their faith response. And when you gather together the accounts of the announcements of the supernatural birth, it's easier to understand the straightforward compliance of Mary and Joseph. You know, we, we, we get the Christmas story like really quick in the microwave version, right? Oh, look at that. Here they are. But understand that this was a process for them. But it was a process of decision making that couldn't happen if God didn't show up. And it's interesting that there's not one direct word from the mouth of Joseph that's recorded in Scripture. Most people surrounding Jesus' birth, talked, they talked, they sang, they shouted and praised. But here we have it in a dream where God opened up to Joseph an option that he'd never considered and he adopts Jesus. As his own son. And so God reveals himself in such a way that Joseph has no problem in adopting Jesus into his family line. So God gets adopted to be in the line of the great King David. And the whole story involving these two people is a story of trust because Mary had to trust God's promise. Joseph had to trust Mary. Mary had to trust Joseph and Joseph had to trust God. And both Mary and Joseph had to say to God, I am your servant. Whatever it costs, wherever it takes me, I will do it. And I believe that God continues to look for men and women like Mary and Joseph. People who will pursue obedience at whatever the cost. People who will trust God even though the outcome seems totally unsure. Have you noticed that the both accounts of this story says nothing of the difficulty of the situation for Mary and Joseph and their family, which must have been very considerable? And if Joseph would not have been the kind of man to marry Mary and raise her child, Jesus wouldn't have had a father. And I look at that and I think, you know, our culture needs more men like Joseph. Our culture needs more women like Mary, women who trust God and guys who, like Joseph, will love them and marry them and raise those children as their own. God raises up people for his purposes. 
God's looking for people who are humble enough to give him the glory. And outside of the resurrection, the greatest miracle ever is the virgin birth. And when God says to Mary, I'm going to make the impossible possible with you, Mary doesn't say, wait a minute, God, I don't believe it. Or wait a minute, God, you know, nobody else is going to believe it. Or God, I need something else. I need something. Give me something more to go on, God. Please, no. But instead, Mary shows the willingness of the Christmas, the willingness of Christmas as she says, I am the Lord's servant. And Joseph, without saying anything recorded, raises that boy as his own. And Mary and Joseph are presented with many paradoxes in the course of their young lives. They thought about, they pondered these things, these events, these seemingly paradoxes, and instead of causing them to dismiss these things as craziness or the falafel from the night before, it brings them to a sense of wonder. A sense of thanksgiving, a sense of gratefulness for the blessings God has given. Can you imagine the joy on the night of the birth? And I think that Christmas is the perfect time of year for us to consider some of the great paradoxes of our own faith. The kind of thoughts that honestly stretch us and challenge us and they cause us to seek answers in the scripture but most importantly I think they reveal to us a mighty God so much greater than what we can imagine so great that that truth and reality to him often seems as paradoxes to us and they're wondrous paradoxes they reveal to us a God of wonder beyond all galaxies who is holy and able to do far above and beyond anything that you and I can imagine they reveal truths that we tend to think of either or, or, or as facts you know but in God's wisdom they're both truth and facts and when you read scripture if you think about it we're, we are being asked to believe the unbelievable because when you think about it, when we look at the entire scripture, Jesus existed in the beginning. He existed before time himself, it's itself. But in Jesus, eternity stepped into time. The eternal one was born into a world of time, and the timeless one now lived in a realm of calendars and timepieces. The one who is omnipresent, that is, he exists in all places uh, at, one, at the same time, in the Christmas story, is now confined to a single place in the person of Jesus. And perhaps the greatest paradox of our faith is that he's fully God and fully man. And so the master comes into the world as a servant. The Lord of glory veiled that glory in a body of flesh. The Lord of life came into the world for the express purpose. Why? To die. The Holy One who can't look upon sin came into this jungle of sin that we call earth. And the object of the Father's delight of, of uh, angelic worship uh, hungered. He thirsted. He sweated. He hurt. He was weary. He slept. And he wandered as a homeless stranger in the world. When you think about it, that his hands made. And it started with Mary. <laughs> 
And when you think about it, she was the first one confronted with the choice to believe that this baby was the Messiah that the scriptures talked about. We noted that she pondered these things in her heart. She treasured them. And if you think about the story of Mary and Joseph, Mary is the only human present at Jesus' birth. She also witnesses death and resurrection. She saw him arrive as her baby son. She saw him die as her savior. And nothing is impossible with God. And that becomes the message of Christmas. It's the answer to the paradoxes that we can't seem to wrap our mind around. It's the answer when we wonder the same things as Mary did about the different things in our lives, the way that God chooses to move. Because later we read that even Jesus said, you know, as he looked at them, he said, with man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. So we know that nothing is impossible with God. The maker of the universe, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, made flesh and dwelt among us. He loved us. He died for us. He died at the hands of the men he made. He died when nails forged. <coughs> Thank you. You think about it. The nails that were forged from the steel he created pierced that flesh that's the paradox and that's the amazing love story and so Matthew sounds the note from the very beginning God has visited this planet in order to redeem people from their sins and it all began with an extraordinary birth through a virgin Mary which was foretold centuries earlier. And everything about this incarnation was to be supernatural or it wouldn't work. And so from the outset, we're confronted with the divine nature of Jesus the Messiah, with the purpose of his coming into the world. And that is the joy. Let's pray. You know, Father, so many of us just sort of live in a state of discontent when the desire for things consume our thoughts and actions. Even as our culture has taken a time where we have sort of set aside to celebrate your birth of your son, Jesus, yeah, we commercialize it greatly. God, I pray for contentment. Not just contentment in myself, but just contentment for all of us. Help us to stay positive, even if it feels like our world is falling apart. God, help us to see blessings, even when we are carrying loads of burdens. We enjoy material things and, and their day-to-day -day function in our lives, but we want to place a higher value on greater pursuits, such as growing our friendships, solidifying our marriage relationships, developing godly character, giving without expecting to receive, standing for and giving to worthy causes, standing for what is right. This goes on and on. And will we be content as we rejoice in the fact that whether we are in want or whether that we have plenty, that you have promised that you'd never leave us or forsake us, God. 
And so my, my prayer is that you would help us live, help me live in your presence, in the, the loving plan of your wisdom, God, that was made known when Jesus, your son, became a man like us. I want to obey his commandment of love and, and bring your peace and your joy and your love to others. So keep before me the wisdom and love that you have made known in your son and help me to be like him in word and deed. for the wounded and for the hurting and for the lonely, for the abused, for the homeless, for the hospitalized. May we be the presence of God for them. When their knees are buckling beneath and their eyes are too heavy to look up, when their mouth is too dry to speak, may we give our knees to kneel, our eyes to see, our mouths to speak. God, may we be reminded that we are your ambassadors and your healing agents this Christmas season. Give us the strength and the ability to do the, just that. Father, this week, put people on our pathway. That we can create conversation. Be it a blue Christmas, be it Christmas Eve, Christmas Day. That we can just talk about our faith, talk about Jesus, talk about the paradoxes of faith. Because the reminder of your son's birth amidst all of our cultural saturation is still there. So be with us, I pray. Amen. Stand with me. I'm not sure if we're supposed to stack chairs. Josh? Lloyd? Anybody? Yes, we are. All right, so if you are able-bodied and you can help us stack the chairs eight high and swing them over to the left, that would be appreciated. In ancient times, the one who blessed extended his hands for a blessing. Those receiving a blessing did likewise. Here's your blessing today. So sanctuary, may your ears become the ears of God in your listening. May your eyes become the eyes of God in your weeping. May your lips become the voice of God in your whispering words of comfort and of hope and of healing. And as you leave this place, may you leave in the joyful presence of God and may he be with you always and everywhere. And we will see you next week. Amen.